Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to this low-carbon session. Uh, my name's Claire Jackson. I'm the Education Sector Lead for Gallifer Tri, so I'm really pleased to be up here in, uh, at the conference um, over the next couple of days. So the, the session, obviously the topic of low carbon is really important topic at the moment, and I think you probably know where are we more aware of this than, than in Glasgow over the last few weeks at COP26. But it's also one of the key themes of the learning estate strategy. And part of what we want to do this afternoon is consider how um, education estates and their users uh, can be briefed and ready to meet the ambitions of the Low Carbon Scotland programme. So I'm just going to introduce the, the, the speakers so that um, save time I can get, get on with the presentations. So the first presentation is going to be by Ross. Um, and he's going to be talking about the following the launch of the Scottish Futures Trust's new voluntary standard for public new builds and refurbishments, which is called the Net Zero Public Sector Building Standard. Um, in, over the course of the year, there's been a number of Pathfinder projects which have trialled the standard, and Ross is going to discuss the aspirations of the standard and the findings from some of those Pathfinder projects. So Ross is Associate Director responsible for Net Zero at the Scottish Futures Trust, is an energy professional and chartered engineer by profession, and he's helped develop the standard and, and he's looking at the lessons learned from its use. Well, then we're going to move on to a presentation around West Lothian Council Early Years Programme, and in particular looking at two projects, one which has used a passive house approach and the second which has used a more traditional build. The projects are now completed and in use, so we're now able to compare the data, the user feedback and the behaviours and um, look at some of the post-occupancy evaluation from those projects. And um, speaking on, on that presentation, we're going to have Kenny Campbell, who's the development manager at Hub Southeast, Alan Smith, low carbon manager at Morrison Construction, who are responsible for the build, um, and Alex Donaldson, the director from Scott Brownrigg, uh, the architects, and also we're going to have some videos from the building users. So I will hand over to Ross. Thank you, Claire. So, um, what I'll cover today is the Net Zero Public Sector Building Standard. Um, and as Claire mentioned, that's been developed by the Scottish Government and a range of other stakeholders, to include my organisation, Scottish Futures Trust, Zero Waste Scotland and others. So, I'll talk today about why we think our standard is necessary and desirable. Um, I'll talk about how the standard developed over time. I'll talk about how it worked, how it's structured and how it's applied and what we want to achieve from it. Um, and I'll also talk um, about how, what we found when we tried it out in a range of projects. So, in some ways this is a response to the increasing number of signals and announcements and initiatives that the public sector is trying to respond to. Uh, from the Scottish Government, from the UK Government, and even beyond that. So net zero is happening now, we need to do something about it. But there's often a, a lack of clarity around what precisely the public sector should do. Um, and we have tried with this standard to try and cover part of the problem with that. So we are trying to provide, in some ways, a trajectory towards net zero for the public sector. And this is the structure of the standard, so you can see that there are three key aspects to it. So place, carbon, as you might expect, and also environment. 
So this has been developed over a number of years with a number of different public sector stakeholders. And it's actually crossed paths in my career. Um, well, I've crossed paths with it a number of times. So about five or six years ago, I was working at a small consultancy who was commissioned to do a piece of work to look at the gap in performance in terms of energy for public sector buildings. So that um, looked at the difference between model performance and actual performance in public sector buildings. And that's a consistent problem that has been recognised by others. That was a really interesting project and that formed the genesis of some of the ideas for the standard. And over time, a number of different public sector organisations became involved and the, the aspects which it sought to cover grew, as you might expect. So within carbon, we are now covering not just operational energy, but embodied carbon and the other whole life aspects of carbon. We're also seeking to integrate the place principle to the standard as well, which is an important concept for the Scottish Government. And we're also, as well as achieving against those aspects, seeking to have great indoor environmental quality and create buildings which integrate well with their surrounding and improve the external environment. So the standard, as it stands at the moment, is pitched squarely at a particular part of the problem. So it's the public sector, it's non-domestic buildings, but it's new build and it's major refurbishment. So Minor refurbishments aren't really covered by what we are trying to do. It should be tailored to meet the particular requirements of any local authority or organisation. So if you have a particular deadline for net zero, the standard can be shaped to reflect that. It's also a voluntary standard, as things stand at the moment. So the way we've pitched this is that it will be for those who want to show ambition um, against all of those aspects that I'd outlined in the previous slide. But we would encourage as many as possible to actually consider. And even if you are not going to go for it in the current project which you're interested in, you may find that it's worth finding out about so that you can more readily apply it in future. So, one of the key aspects of the standard is that we're not just modelling good performance in terms of energy and in terms of indoor environmental quality, but we're seeking to verify it as well. So that's an important aspect of it, and in some ways that mirrors what would happen with other procedures um, or funding agreements such as LEAP. It prompts the participant to set net zero targets quite early on, in the development of their project and that can be something that's uncomfortable because this is before you have any modelling undertaken, before you know everything in detail about your building but that's something which we've sought to create guidance which will help people through that process. So there's a range of benefits for the application of the standard and what, as I say, we hope to do is to provide a trajectory for net zero so that people are making the right decisions now with our new builds and major refurbishments. We've noted from the Pathfinder process that it will steer our decision making in certain ways. So in some ways it will help prioritise reuse of existing buildings over new build. It will help um, build our understanding and ability in terms of 
minimising embodied carbon in our construction projects as well. And it'll also help us um, remediate projects where things don't turn out quite as planned as well with the procedures and the structure that we've put in place. So what I'll do now is quickly go through the different elements of the standard. So this for me is one of the most interesting and um, differential aspects of the standard. So I'm a mechanical engineer by background and some of the concepts that is covered in the place part of the standard, standard are really interesting. So it's about, at the very early stages, making sure that you have the right decisions. So the right building, the right place for the right reasons with your investment. And that follows the structure of the infrastructure investment plan. So follows the hierarchy, so making sure that you identify and understand your need, making sure that you make the best use of existing assets, and then when you complete that process, you may get to a, a, a point where you decide you want a new build. It also embodies the three priorities within an infrastructure investment plan. So that includes net zero and environmental sustainability, as you may expect, but that also includes building resilient and sustainable places and driving inclusive economic growth. So some people that we've spoken to think that place is about using the place principle to minimise carbon in your project, and that's correct, but it's more than that. It's also about using place to drive these other two priorities within the project, and that's important. That's something we've wrestled with to try and make that project or that part of the process easy to apply, yet at the same time robust and manageable. So, Carbon is a, a huge part of the standard um, and my own area of interest is primarily in relation to operational energy. So what we've done is try to apply a simple set of targets for buildings and those are largely based around the principle that it should be possible in most public sector buildings, not all, that we're dealing with to achieve less than 100 kilowatt hours per metre squared per annum. Um, so we as I say, encourage people to create targets at the outset of the process and then use dynamic simulation modelling to refine and make sure that they're on the right path to those targets as their design progresses. And then we want them to verify in use. And if everything goes according to plan, that verification process can be quite simple and quite low cost. But if we need to remediate and take steps to understand why things haven't gone quite as well, then we can rely upon that modelling process and that early work to help solve some of our problems. Construction embodied carbon, another whole life carbon, is another area where we set targets within the standard. And that was one of the areas, as I'll come to, where our Pathfinder projects were most interested and most, most keen to learn about how they can be integrated into what can already be quite a complex decision-making process within design. So finally, um, the environmental aspects, so indoor environment and the effect of your investment on the external environment. Again, within the indoor environment, there's a, a key emphasis on the use of dynamic simulation modelling, and that would go beyond what you would expect just for normal compliance. We would expect to see things like climate-based daylighting evaluation, uh, modelling future climates for overheating and so on. And we also think within this part of the standard and in other parts that some of the, the other standards and aspirations that people may already be applying, such as BRIAM, such as well, 
can be easily integrated with what we want to achieve. So if you're already doing some of these things already, we would hope that you can actually meet some of the requirements of our standard quite readily. We don't want to create double work, if you like. The external environment assessment within the standard is designed to be flexible. So I'd mentioned place earlier on in the presentation. The idea here is that we find out through place or make sure that you have the right investment for the right reasons. And then in the final part of the standard, you show that you maximise the benefit that you can achieve once you've achieved, once you have settled on a particular building in a particular location. So we integrate a degree of flexibility within that part. So where are we with the standard at the moment? Earlier in the year, we provided a, a main document which set out the aspirations and the basic structure of the standard. In November, we have released a suite of supporting guidance documents and documents which set out the requirements of the standard um, in some degree of detail. And then the next few weeks, we'll be issuing a set of Pathfinder case studies as well, which I'll talk about to some degree today, which can show how the standard can be applied and where the benefits can be found in the, the application of it. So the standard Pathfinder project, SFT and our partners have uh, a, a track record of learning through doing. So at the, the early part of the year, we had a, a raft of draft documentation for standard application and what we essentially did was tried, tried it out or test drove it in about 10 different projects. All of these projects it's important to note had already set out some aspirations in terms of their environmental performance and if you like what we did was use some of the Pathfinder report support to enhance their own projects and also make some comparison against the, the effort that would be required to achieve the standard in each. You can see that there's a, a lot of educational projects in there. Um, there's projects which we engaged at all different stages and of all different sizes. And I'll talk quickly about three or four of these just now. So I think this has already been covered to some extent in some of the other presentations today, and you may have heard something about it. But St. Sophia's is one that particularly impressed me. And I think it shows the potential um, for refurbishment as a solution in terms of investment. So this was a 1950s primary school um, in a, a rural community. And there were a number of options on the table for um, the ongoing education, educational provision. One of which could have involved a new school, but what was found through the stakeholder engagement process was that the, the building um, had quite a lot of value to the community and that they wanted to retain it. So what they've done is they've went for the inner fit um, process, which is almost the retrofit version of Passive House. And indeed, they'll be one of the first schools in the UK to achieve that if successful. So Dunfermline Learning Campus is a much bigger scale um, and that involves the agglomeration of two existing high schools and a single um, college campus as well as some other community facilities um, it's a really good example of joined up learning um, and co a collaborational approach there was a lot of thought and effort went into a combined master plan which Fife Council and Fife College collaborated on um, and it, it was interesting for a number of reasons 
in terms of the engagement through the Pathfinder. So we found the, the approach of both the school and the college and really um, refreshing and um, encouraging, especially for things like embodied carbon, where they were wrestling with issues like the extent to which renewable energy was applied in their building, which you might think would be a, a good thing um, to an unlimited extent, but what they found was that the application of solar PV panels um, had a, a countervailing factor or a, 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 an input in terms of the embodied carbon for the project. So they had to balance it out in terms of the operational energy performance and the, the embodied carbon that integrating renewables might impact on their building. Uh, Pennycook is another example of a refurbishment and it's interesting because they are at a very early stage and they're still to a point of design team as I understand it. It's a listed building um, and they have uh, uh, they'd always banked upon including in, included the listed part of the building in the refurbishment. However, they're also looking at refurbishing the 1950s, 1960s block, which it adjoins that, with the specific goal of potentially reducing the embodied carbon of the project. So that's still being considered, but it's another example of where refurbishment can help with the embodied carbon targets. And then finally, Maybury School and Health Centre is a really good example of a collaborational approach. They're fairly well on in comparison to, for example, Pennycook. They've done a lot of good things, so they have fantastic energy performance in terms of their targets. They've set out a really good standard in terms of um, encouraging active travel, so they have minimal, if any, car parking provision within the building. Um, and they've also worked hard to reduce their embodied carbon, so I think they've went for um, quite a, they went into quite a degree of detail to make sure that the materials that they chose were going to give them body targets, body carbon targets that they wanted. So just some final thoughts um, from the Pathfinders. The interface between energy performance and environmental performance, the indoor environmental performance is very important. There can be a balancing act here to make sure that we understand the loads and the profiles and the way the building is going to be used. The increasing potential for refurbishment is an option, as I mentioned. I think some of the projects are really encouraging in that respect. Um, there's also um, construction of body carbon, which was something that ran right through all of the Pathfinders as a, an area of interest. And, something that people wanted to optimise and make better. And then finally, the importance of place and how that gets integrated into the projects. We realised that in rolling out the standard place will need a little bit of flexibility. We'll be engaging with people at different stages in the process. So thank you. Thank you for Thanks. Thanks, Ross. So we're just going to move on to the West Lothian comparison projects now. Hi, everyone. Okay, so we're here to give uh, a talk on uh, two nurseries that we carried out for uh, West Lothian Council. I've got the, the mugshots here. Uh, myself, you know, Claire's uh, already introduced us, but myself, Hub South East, uh, Alan low carbon manager, Morrison Construction, and Alex from Scott Brownrigg, or future me, as somebody commented earlier. 
Well, thanks. Uh, so I'm just going to give you a quick uh, project recap. In 2018, Westland Council assessed the response to the 1140 hours policy from the government, which increased hours from 600 to 1140 hours a year, obviously putting a lot of stress on their existing estate. Uh, through that, they identified the requirement for two new build facilities at Blackridge Primary School and St Mary's Primary School. So they decided to deliver that through Hub South East with our design build development agreement. The delivery team was engaged uh, about August of that year of 2018 and everyone was engaged under the strategic partnering services which HUD Pub runs which is a great way to start a project, it's really flexible and it turned out to be really important in this project, um, primarily because it allowed us to get in early and explore the brief with West Lothian Council. It was all set up on you know, SFTs, exemplar projects and the space to grow guidance came out from the government. So we were able to get a good look at that and you know, generally it just uh, allows us all to ensure we're on the same page before we get into the design in earnest. So next we've just got a quick visual here where you can see where we are, St Mary's Primary School in Bathgate and then Blackridge Primary School in the village of Bathgate, both of them just north of the M8 uh, in between Edinburgh and Glasgow. Okay, so about at the same time there was a uh, Quite a lot of noise about Passive House uh, came in 2018-2019 and uh, we looked into this and we could see that there weren't many Passive House buildings in Scotland but one that, uh, and most of them were residential, but one that stood out was a nursery up in Aberdeen. So obviously putting two and two together at the time, we thought, look, is this something that we could do on the nurseries for West Lothian Council? Um, at the time, as I say, we were on that flexible commission and uh, it allowed us the time to do a, a passive house feasibility report for West Lothian where we looked into the design and the commercial viability of doing those projects. While we were going through that, uh, the opportunity came up that because the two briefs were identical, and I think you can see from the floor plans here we ended up with identical floor plans, uh, we could do one with a passive house specification and the other in traditional. And I suppose at the time passive house was Bit of an unknown. I've just pressed the wrong button. I'll pause it for a bit. Um, and really, it was just an opportunity for us to get in there, look at some data, um, look at you know the capability of the supply chain, risks, costs, buildability, and of course just our performance, um, the performance in operation, which uh, Alex and Alan are going to go into. So. All of that it should give us great data to inform the, the future school briefs and generally the strategic direction for, for West Lothian. Uh, so I'm glad to say that you know, construction was successfully delivered with those brief parameters that we'd set early on, you know, um, the affordability cap and the programme COVID aside. And St Mary's was complete in November 2020 and Blackridge in 21. So I'll press the button now and we'll get a quick video from the guys from West Lothian Council, get their side of the tale.
I think it's important for all asset holders to um, respond to the climate emergency effectively. Um, in West Lothian Council, energy consumption has been the largest part of our carbon footprint for a significant period of time now. And if we're to tackle the challenges that were faced by the climate emergency, we need to deal with not only our existing buildings, but also ensure that our new buildings have as low an impact on the environment as we possibly can. I think it's a very exciting project to have developed the project with a passive house building in Blackridge and the standard build through um, St Mary's Primary School in Bargate. It allows for the council to look at the key performance measures of both of the buildings, but it will also inform our future learning estate projects. I think um, by capturing that data, um, we can really help to educate the educators. Um, we can make sure that the people who are using these buildings understand them better. It's, it's really keen or really important for us to recognise that Passive House is very new to everyone um, and it, it's not going to be operated in the same way as we have done with conventional buildings in the past. I think the expectation would be that Blackridge will be far more energy efficient uh, than St Mary's, um, but I would expect from the quality of the construction at the sites that the, the, the user experience should be very similar, um, and, and that's what the post-occupancy evaluation will hopefully show us. Okay. Hello everyone. Um, <clears throat> so as, as Kenny said, we've uh, completed the buildings now, and um, so what we're looking at is how do we establish the benefits of, of Passive House. So what we're doing is we're um, now moving into a three-year post-occupancy evaluation period um, where we're going to try and identify the, the theoretical uh, versus the, the in-use performance of the building. Um, and how, how we're going to do that is, as, as Peter said on the video, it's you know how, how do we educate the educators to, to understand the building. Um, he talks about the expectation that both buildings will perform the same from a user experience, um, but we're noticing subtle differences, and Alex is going to pick up on them um, as well. Uh, but I think crucially, and, and as um, as Ross said, it's as much about the the environment, the user experience, as it is about the building performance, the, the operational performance. <clears throat> so through this through this um, post occupancy period, it's how do we get that balance between the building performance um, and the, and the user experience. So just, just expanding on the, 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 the buildings then, the differences between the two, obviously Blackridge is the passive house, so what that means in practical terms is it's got a very low air tightness, um, less than, than one metre cubed per hour per metre square, if that means anything to anybody. Um, it's got very low U values, the, the low U values are around about 0.1, um, and it's a mechanically ventilated um, building with, with heat recovery. Um, whereas St Mary's uh, has got an air tightness probably standard about four and a half, so as you can see it's got a fairly um, significantly more more of an air um, air tightness factor. Uh, standard U values, just building regulation compliant U values, um, and it's a it's a naturally ventilated building, so we have to rely on the the users to open the windows to, to ventilate it. Um, so if you think about it in the context of cars, uh, Blackridge is like an automatic car. Um, St Mary's is like a, a manual manual car. Um, Oh, and sorry, they're both uh, both got air source heat pumps as well, so they're they're uh, both fully electric. So, 
In terms of what we are what we're measuring then, um, to obviously to do this, we need to have a lot, lots of lots of data that we can we can use to interpret. Um, so in the base build, we installed uh, monitors. We installed environmental monitors uh, in the key spaces, uh, and we've got also got submetering um, in the in the plant as well. So we're, we're monitoring CO two levels, um, humidity, and temperature, um, and then obviously the submetering on on that. And that that's um, they're getting recorded continually um, at, at the moment. So th this is almost a lessons learned as much as anything here because um, when we set out this project at um, sorry doing a Boris there um, when uh, yeah when we set out this um, we, we didn't really know where it was going to evolve in, into this um, into this project so that we, we, we managed to install the, the environmental monitors in in the space the, this one you see here is in in St Mary's. Uh, we've got slightly different ones in, in Blackridge. Um, but because Blackridge is connected to the BMS and St Mary's isn't, it's capturing that data is, is proving to be um, a little bit more onerous than we thought. It's, you know, how, how do we encapsulate all this data together in the first instance? Because we've got lots of different streams of it coming in. Um, and then also the, the data is, uh, that's the the quantitative data, um, but it's also the, the quality of how do we capture that user feedback from the from the staff as well. So we're capturing data, um, we're, we're doing uh, quarterly uh, reviews with the staff, uh, we're, we're, we're going to be doing um, survey monkeys to, to get the uh, sort of bi-weekly information from the staff. So all, all that data is coming in, but then we also need to, to analyse it. So we've got Etude who were the Passive certifier on the project. Um, so, so they're going to take all that data together, analyze it, interpret it, um, and then feed it back in to the, to the process. So hopefully we start to get that, uh, that, that um, feedback loop and the, you know, start to see the, the benefit of that coming through. So as I mentioned, but we've got the qualitative and the quantitative data there. And uh, j just a, a small example really here of, of, the, of what that means in practice. Um, th this is an image of, of one of the schools here. This is the, the large sliding door here. Um, so when it was designed, the, the, in, the, the theoretical design performance assumes that that door is probably closed 90, 95% of the time. Um, but, but in use, the, the staff for the, for the educational needs have that, that door open more, more often than not. So there's a, straight away a, a slight discrepancy there about how it's, how it's designed and, and how, it's, how it's used. So, when we start to you know start to get that data back, it might it might show that the the energy performance is is higher than it's been designed. But having that that um, qualitative data um, is will allow us to you know see how see the impact that that might have, and it might be that the, that the compromise is reached that we might accept that it's, it's not going to perform just exactly as it's been designed, but because the educational needs you know, overtake it and it's just getting that, getting that balance there. So um, yeah, so the, these are all the kind of things that, that, that we're looking at. And, um, um, and as I say, we're, 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 we're meeting with the staff and you know, we're asking these, these questions, you know, how, how does it feel? How, how, does it, um, how does it feel when it's cold? Or what do you do when it's cold? What do you do when it's warm? How, how, do, you, how do you perceive the controls? Um, and all that's going to add up to the, um, the the sort of information there, um, and I'm just going to play a little little video here here as well, and um, just want to sort of touch on one of the first points as well that you'll see. I think it's Audrey that that, that makes it, 
Um, she talks about the, the, the environment being better for the kids and um, anecdotally, I guess, I guess we don't have any hard data on this, that she's noticing, because she's from Blackridge, uh, but she's noticing that the environment with, with the much better acoustics, the, um, I guess the calmer, the, the better CO2 levels, um, she's seen a real difference in the, the kids who are maybe on, um, you know, maybe have you know, some sort of behavioural issues that they are finding a lot more calm, calm in the environment as well. So just really interesting to get that, that kind of early feedback um, as well. So what we did was we went in and we asked the staff the same questions each, each uh, to try and tease out maybe some of the subtle differences um, between the two nurseries. So I'm just going to let this play and, uh, and then I'll pass you over to, to Alex. in Scotland to be pacifist. <laughs> the experiences and opportunities that I've got in this building over-succeed what was in the previous building enormously. And just as much as the temperatures at the one, you know, I do go back, so we've had less colds, we've had a lot of less children being off sick. Um, so there must be something within the, the, the environment and the building that's, that's supporting that. So other buildings, older buildings, only have a, a radiator and whatever, whereas we're a much more high-tech in that sense that we can decide how hot we want it, how cold we want it, um, in different areas of the room as well. So it's not like if I want one end of the room hotter, than the other, I can do that. Whereas in other buildings, it's the whole room that's either hot or it's the whole room that's cold. We have been explained to us, it does, it was like we, we actually did it when we were, we were getting explained to us, um, and it's just a button on the wall that we use. Um, so if it was too hot, we'd press our button and that brings the fresh air in to cool down the environment. And if it's too cold, um, then we press like another switch and that obviously brings air in, but it heats it up before it comes in to your nursery. If it felt cold, we would close windows if they were open on the first instance. Um, if that wasn't working, we would then just go to the wee box on the wall and turn up the temperature slightly, uh, just until we've got a comfortable um, atmosphere. The control over the internal environment, I've not had a lot of experience because I feel it's an even temperature all the time that I'm in. In the building, if it feels cold, we've not actually experienced that as yet. Um, so. I'm sure time will tell if it is cold in the building or not. So if it feels stuffy or warm, we'll obviously open the, the windows um, to let some natural air in. Um, and also, if the children are outside, keep the door open as well. The side door that we can keep open. Obviously in the summertime, we'll have that open more than we do as it's getting a bit colder. Too hot, again, there is another switch that we can press. It brings fresh air in, but it heats it up before it distributes into the building. So that keeps us warm in that respect as well. Obviously, we have children sitting all together, more so now that we're allowed to. If the children are all in one area for a story, um, we keep an eye on the CO2 levels to make sure that they're not going 
up to a poor level where we're not going to get the best from the children. Um, obviously, if this happens, then we'll open windows to make sure there's enough air being circulated. Um, the sensors um, in the room, we didn't really know much about them at the beginning. Um, it wasn't until a few weeks ago that we were actually advised on how they work. So going forward, beginning to um, the winter and that, that will probably prove to us what, how they work and how good they work and how efficient they are. Blackridge is, now this word I can never, pacifist, is it? <laughs> Okay, what's not to love about this wonderful project? Now, start as you mean to go on. At every single stage of this project, it delivered something very special. At the early stages, a user requirement analysis that um, essentially gave birth to the concept that we were going to do twin schools to conduct an analysis upon. Mid-stage, a new process for both ourselves and HUB in the form of the PHPP and the analysis that comes with the, having to deliver in the passive house arena. In construction, a new approach with regards to how you really have to all be on site with regards to delivering the quality. And now we're entering, or just entering into a post-occupation evaluation phase, which unusually uh, is going to extend for three years. Now, of course, we had to have a clear methodology, an evaluation methodology for the post-occupation evaluation, but we had to have a clear methodology for each and every stage of this project to deliver what is a massive project which far outreaches the physical scale of the project. It's been uh, received with great interest throughout the UK. and we really need to extend the horizons in terms of how we involve the community, the education community, indeed the wider UK community in the ongoing development of this project through its post-occupation evaluation phase. Now, probably perception of complexity, okay, it's quite a complicated thing to leave with people who've never really run a building before, but some of the reversion to type that happened the FM guys, leave our building alone, don't touch it. The school, well, we don't actually know how to run it because nobody's shown us how to run it. So there were a number of behaviours that we had to meet our way through in the early stages of the project. But although it sounds quite audacious, educating the educator has a softer meaning because it's not that kind of assumptive thing, it's like people are learning with the buildings and do we have to adjust our behaviours? Well this whole exercise has been an adjustment of behaviours, not just for the occupiers now, but the design team, clients, people who are costing it and indeed everybody who's evaluating it now. Now, one of the most amazing things that's come out of the look at the Passive House at, uh, 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 at the Passive House School, the calmness that's there, it's palpable. You can feel it. Colds and sickness. Now, that's a bit of a, you know, a throwaway comment in some respect. We don't really know where or whether that will be borne out in the fullness of time, but it was one of the biggest concerns about Passive House 
when people are thinking, oh, well, you're going to be putting everybody in an enclosed environment and all those germs are just going to circulate, but that might not be the case. I'm a bit obsessed with the controls as one of the uh, video comments we had to cut out. Now, we just press a button. If the building does the heavy lifting for you, the behaviours very definitely need to adjust far less. But some of the, you know, like when you go into a hotel room and you have a look at that panel, the temptation to muck about with that thing is absolutely incredible. So the commitment that the staff have had in the non-passive house nursery to engage with the quality environment has also been incredible. So a total comparison from a number of different standpoints. And I'll hand over to Kenny if you just want to round us off there. Me again, try and keep you awake. Um, so we're just looking at some early results here. Obviously because of COVID, it's put everything back a bit. So really these buildings only got into normal usage about mid-August. So uh, with that and all the calibra calibration period that goes into the early POE, it means that we're just getting going now with uh, some good data that we can use. You know, as uh, Alex said, we've got good qualitative data out there where we think that the buildings are performing, both of them are performing well, but the passive house in particular, you know, it's got some real benefits. We think the thermal comfort's great. Uh, acoustically, it's working really well, which is one of these other things that came out of left field, you know. Um, young kids can sleep right beside a playground over lunchtime because, you know, there's a lot of insulation, triple glazing. When the windows are shut, you can't really hear, which is great and uh, ease of use as well. I think you might have picked up from the video that the building users, they've just got a couple of buttons to use and uh, it, it, the building seems to be working really well, just with, to be honest with you, with them really not knowing how to use it for, uh, for a while and it just stayed a good temperature. Up here I've got a graph just on the energy results. Um, the two lines we've got here were generated in 2019 just towards the end of our design. And what it was telling us at the stage like for like, we were 18% extra capex to build the passive house building. Um, and that was through the reduction in energy usage and energy costs. It was taking about 19 years for the buyback of that extra capex. Got me start 19 years, but um, as you've all probably seen in the press, you know, the way energy prices are going, it's, uh, you know, the energy prices are going up and up, and that, along with the, the more efficient building at Black Ridge, means that the buyback is coming back the way. So already we're seeing that buyback for the 18% extra capex is going to be under 15 years. And also keeping in mind that this wasn't the ideal form factor for the building. We think if that was scaled up and done in a similar way, then the extra capex is going to come back through the whole life cost of the building. So I suppose what we've seen in three points is one, like for like, the passive house is more expensive, 18% here. But the great thing about this is that we've got two cost plans with identical quantities. So we can look at all the individual elements to see what is more expensive. And on the passive house and these, everything was more expensive or cost neutral. Two, so it does look like a superior product. Uh, you know, as good as St Mary's is, Passive House is performing great. Uh, and again, just 
to re-emphasise, you do get a payback for the building. Um, so I'm just going to going to wind up, but I thought there was a fact check there that in the second video, somebody commented that it was the first passive house nursery. Now it wasn't the Rockin' Horse Nursery in Aberdeen gets that accolade, but uh, this was the first publicly funded passive house building period in Scotland, which which is fantastic, and uh, we feel like it takes a bit of guts to be the first to go and make those decisions and do that. And West Lothian Council, you know, they, they've been a really forward-thinking client and innovative and uh, partnered well with Hub South East. We've really enjoyed the work we've done and they, they showed it here as well. And also just with the, the supply chain, it's worth a mention that, you know, Morrison, Scott Brownrigg, WGM, Wardle Armstrong, everyone involved, they were posed with a challenge quite early to be the first to go out there and do this in the public building and all that that entailed. And I was really proud of all of them that they reacted great, uh, they got in there, rise to the challenge, embraced it, and they made a real a real success of these, you know, and as I say, uh, apart from COVID, that went quite flawless. So we've got Alan Little from Morrison's here, doesn't get uh, wheeled out very often for praise, but he runs a tight ship and did really well. A big part of the delivery was down to him. So, yeah, that's great, and uh, listen, we'll probably be back in three years to give you an update on the numbers and see if all that's still true. And uh, you know, hopefully, even though there will be buildings, the numbers that come out of them will, will go a long way to helping people's thinking. Okay. That's all from us. Thank you. Thank, thanks to the speakers there for keeping to time so well that we've got about 15 minutes for questions. Some really interesting kind of early feedback that's been shown by both on the Pathfinder projects and the West Lothian projects. So, um, have you got questions? Would you like to? Um, would you like to use the microphone? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Claire. Um, so I know um, BMS Building Management Systems get a get a bad press generally. People are you know really negative about them, and you mentioned something about the two nurseries, one having one, one not. Just be interested in understanding a bit more about that and whether actually you think they do have a place and that's something that we should be building in so that we can capture that data. Okay. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so as I said, uh, Black, Blackridge is the one with the, the BMS, St Mary's is not. And the, the, the issues, I, I guess it's compounded by... Um, remote working as well because to, to access the data it's got to go through a, a, a separate IP system to, to access the data which, which we don't have an access to and it's, it's accessed via the, via the council and I think remote working's made that harder to um, get hold of as well. Um, whereas St Mary's it's, uh, we have to go in and manually collect the data um, as well which is I guess there's a bit more assurity about that one, but there is that physical element of having to go there and the, the, the monitors time out, up, <coughs> time out after three months. So if, if we don't go in, then so I would say there's probably pros and cons in each. Um, I think a, a BMS system that, that works is is probably the, the preferable one, uh, but just St Mary's didn't have that that luxury. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's just the teething issues. We, as I said, we, we hadn't probably th thought about it in that granular detail before we got to that stage. So. I guess our kind of takeaway is that you know just really 
plan that ahead and just how, how not only get the monitors in, but how do you actually get that data then out of it? So um, yeah, I, I would I would uh, I wouldn't say yes or no on a BMS system, but yeah, just, that's just the issues that we've come across. Yeah. Would you like to say who you are as well when you ask the question? Yes, hello, Colin <laughs> Campbell. Um, I'm very interested to hear, looking at the indoor environmental qualities, if uh, the anecdotal things about uh, acoustics maybe be interesting to measure the sound levels um, as against the activities, occupation, what the activities are, day night, and um, when the windows are open, is it, is it calm and quiet when the windows are shut? And what's happening when, when the windows are open? Maybe the triple glazing units are always closed. Um, so that would be interesting to measure that long term. And also the light levels, um, or blinds coming down, artificial lighting coming on, you know, just broader indoor environmental qualities. Yeah, that, that's, that's very definitely objective. We've got to conduct that analysis as well. You can't have somebody, you know, in a video like that saying, it's so calm. Uh, and it is without actually putting some sort of objective kind of analysis in the background as to why they may be saying that, especially when we have a comparator project to run alongside it. We may find that it could be road traffic, uh, it might be something else, but we don't actually conduct analysis, so that is something that we've got on board, yeah. I think, I think one of the big, um, the, the big difference, well, Blackridge is, um, they're both they're both next to the playground in the school, but we were building the car park at Blackridge as well. So there was lots when when we were in there was lots of construction noise, um, and the kids were playing in the playground as well. And they, they did have the the windows open because they obviously can can open the windows in in Blackridge as well. But it was very noticeable how when you were outside it was very noisy, but when you went in it the noise just came right down. So it's it's not to say that that's not the same in. The non-passive house as well, but it was just very, very noticeable. Um, and with because you've had, got the triple glazed windows and you've got 400 mil thick walls, you know that that obviously contributes quite quite strongly to it. But yeah, I completely completely agree that we probably will want to extend the the scope of it as well. Yeah, yeah. it will be time quality measure. Uh, we'll be able to tell a lot from that, and it will definitely inform not only the you know what you put into the uh, fabric, but also you know, how we consider whether sighting's an issue as well. Oh, sorry, there's someone at the back first. Beat you to it. Um, I'm Sarah Usher from Nordan UK. I wanted to ask another couple of questions about how the windows are opened. So in Blackridge, you're saying the staff press a button to open the windows? Um, how does that work in St Mary's? Are they physically opening windows? Um, no, they're, they're both uh, tilt and turn windows. Or sorry, I shouldn't say that in front of Neil. They only tilt. Definitely don't tilt and turn. Sorry. Um, no, so they're, they're both manual. Um, when they were saying they pressed the button, that, that was for the, for the ventilation boost. Um, so the, the difference between St Mary's, they, they would open the windows to get ventilation in and to cool the space down as well, um, whereas in Blackridge they, they can open the windows if they want, um, but they could also press the, the fan boost button to get some extra fresh air in as well. Um, so so the, the windows are um, 
exactly the same systems, but uh, it's triple glazed in Black Ridge and double glazed in St Mary's, but they're the, the same manual operation. Okay, so although they've got Passive House standard windows in Black Ridge, when you open them and if you leave them open, like you said, to the back door, then your U value isn't... Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. okay. Yeah. Hi there, uh, Kieran McFadden from Atkins. Um, I understand that the, the air source heat pumps were used to satisfy the building's heat demand for both buildings, is that right? Was the specification of the units the same and will there be some measurement of the coefficient performance for both of those units over the, over the course of the, the, kind of the, the next couple of years to see how, how both the, the, the bills are affected by that and how the units perform in general? Is that something that's planned in because it would be quite interesting to see how they will differ. Yeah, so it's, it's the same same system in both. I think it's the same specification, Alan Little, is that correct? Yeah, yes, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll say it's here. Yeah, it's, a, it, it's exactly the same. And uh, yeah, so, so we are submetering the, the, the performance of them as well. Yeah. Hazel Delgard from the Scottish Funding Council. I wondered about the influencing point. I found that was really inspirational and um, wondered if you could say more, particularly around the upfront costs. Um, so it's going to cost more to invest upfront in a passive house, but once you show your presentation, you can show that the whole life um, costs come down and you can show the point where the cost is recovered. So do some people um, does that convince people? And is that rest of the UK or Scotland? What's the sort of sphere of influence? Oh, it's, yeah, <laughs> it, it's quite interesting that. Oh, hold on. I think it's moving. I think your mic's focused. what? Yeah, I think it's coming. Is it on? This one's on. Right. Yeah, no, it, it's really interesting that because, you know, as much as whole life costing should be a big part of these decisions, a lot of the time it's marginalised and they're all capex driven without a doubt. So that's why I think these are great because what they're showing is that it's not an ideal building and we were the first to the market. The Scottish market took a while to respond and we had to do a lot of work to get them there to get all the passive house elements. And we got to you know 18% over capex, which I thought was quite good. But when we're showing the payback here on, a, on an imperfect model, I think it absolutely should play into the, into the thinking. And you know, I think, um, Kind of where I was getting to is capability just isn't an issue on de delivering these buildings with the cross-section that we've, we've got of the Scottish market. It's more about thinking about the whole life cost and making decisions on that and equating that into the funding, which is the, the difficult discussion. You know, and, um, I, I, know the, I know these discussions are being had at the moment, but there's got to be a bit of clarity, I think. Uh, and now that we've got some numbers, we can maybe put some science to that. You know. Yeah, and then the final point on the behaviours uh, aspect of it as well. If people want these things to work, they will work. It's like, you know, in a domestic situation, I'm not suggesting you wear a jumper, but if you don't switch central heating on, if you make some fundamental decisions, one of the interesting comments, yet again, we had to leave it on the cutting floor, was if it gets too hot, we just open the window. Now, that's maybe not the best thing to be doing with a passive house building necessarily 
but we'd built in the we talked about you know that compromise could be built within the parameters you shouldn't have to interfere with the functionality too much but fundamentally it's about people wanting it to work uh, and the buildings is a bit of a training program that's one of the exercises that we're rather hoping that we're going to be able to catapult into the wider uh, industry or certainly West Lothian's wider estate as well. Look, they can do it. Um, how about we do it? I think that's a good point about the post-occupancy and the sort of staff feedback that you're going to get because the videos are really interesting. They, I, I found it quite um, noticeable that the Blackridge staff, um, a bit like Alan's analogy, explaining that they're, you know, they've got a fully automated system. They don't need to kind of worry about how they change gear or, you know, what, what, what else they need to, to change because it's working for them. So that's going to be really interesting feedback, I think, in the future to look at as well. Are there any more questions? You've got someone at the back? This is cruel that's making people walk to the microphone. Hello, sorry, I'm uh, Magnus Ingalls from Midlothian Council. I'm interested also in, we're looking at the, the capital expenditure and the, the payback cost for that and also the running cost for I'm interested to know if you have any uh, anticipation about the maintenance cost of the building and whether the passive house will be, it's got a more complicated air ventilation system, but on the other hand, you're presumably putting less load into the, the heat pump system. Your windows probably will be open less if you've managed to train people not to open the windows when it gets too warm. Uh, so I'm just interested if you're monitoring that and if you've got any feel as to how that's going to work. Yeah, I think. Um, get, it, <laughs> get rid of this broken one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, so, for that whole life cost, it's something we're looking into. And interestingly, here, because we've got the two buildings identical, and funnily enough, the finishes, I think, are identical as well. So, it's actually starts narrowing down what you're looking at in your, in your ongoing maintenance cost. And, and you're right, I suppose the big one that stands out is the MVHR units. Which uh, you know were a, a big, you know, capex increase for for Blackridge and uh, any anything to do with them. To be fair, on on the ongoing maintenance cost is what's going to separate the two. Apart from that, you know, I don't think there's going to be a great difference between them. You're right. You know, windows they might be used a bit differently, but ultimately they've got, probably have similar lifespans. You know, similar warranties. So the replacement costs obviously a bit more in windows, stuff like that. But um, I think you'd be quite surprised about how similar they're going to be. Well, the whole life cost is something that we're going to get into through the POE as well. As we develop that, we've, we've got that within our remit and we'll build that up. So after the three years, we're going to have that comprehensive package of information. Yeah, and uh, maybe just one. Um, uh, the, the days of PPP are maybe gone, but one of the big exercises that had to be done was yeah, every building had to have a whole life cycle replacement strategy that's not just for finishes it's for moving parts and that that's something that has kind of got lost in the mists as well um, when do you have to replace these things it's kind of just parked off to the side at the moment so it's an operational thing that we should all be aware of and it is very definitely part of the net zero carbon cycle that we need to engage with so yeah a good question thank you I think we've got time for, was there one more question down here? Stephen Miles from ADP. 
Uh, firstly, guys, congratulations. Very tough building type to take on to do pacify, so I think that, that was very brave. I just wondered, between the two different projects, was there any significant site characteristic differences that had any influence on how the buildings are performing? And does that tell us anything about what we should do in terms of site selection for passive house projects going forward? Alan, first. Yeah, yeah so the, just more by, by chance and design, the, the buildings are orientated identically, which helps uh, helps with the comparison study um, but in terms of the site characteristics Blackridge was on a quite a significant slope um, so we had uh, we probably had a, a sub-optimal foundation solution for, for Blackridge to, to get the to get the retaining wall in there and the the insulation upfill so that that um, that probably contributed to you know part of the, the differential as well so I think um, you know the the ideal scenario would be a, a raft foundation on a nice flat site um, but we obviously know that that's not uh, not going to happen on every site. So, um, yeah, the, the the buildings did end up very similar in terms of their site site characteristics ultimately. Um, but yeah, it was the, the the foundation solution was 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 the big big difference between the two. Um, but it's um, I, and I think that's probably one of the, the key considerations for getting a passive house building to work in the first instance is that you know coming out of the ground because once you're out of the ground you're you're in a lot of control. But uh, yeah, the foundations are quite hard, hard to do. So, yeah, that, that was probably the big one. Yeah, well, one's in a relatively uh, orientation identical. It's within 0.25 of a degree. Yeah. But uh, the Black Ridge is essentially, maybe it's the clues in the name, it's on the side of a ridge. Um, so it's much more exposed. It's the passive house. So maybe the exposure factor, the exposure factor is something that we didn't really dip down to in too much detail. You know, if we'd been doing two passive house uh, projects, we would have definitely dipped down into the uh, exposure category, and that would have shown even more data. So there's, you know, Blackridge is going to have to work a bit harder because it's on the side of a hill, uh, but uh, St Mary's is relatively sheltered. It's also sheltered by trees which Blackridge did for a bit, but unfortunately. Anyway, I won't say any more about that. Okay. We've got one quick question then at the back. <laughs> Hi there, Ross McLaughlin from Argyll and Butte Council. Very quick question is, um, two almost identical buildings a few miles apart in terms of skills and contractors. When you went out for tender, how many did you get for passive house and how many did you get for traditional? Uh, so, yeah, we, <laughs> we, uh, we stuck to the, to the hub model there where we got 80% of um, uh, the projects market tested. We got three returns back for each construction element. So we did the whole lot. Um, I can't quite remember the elements that we didn't, to be totally honest with you. I think we got at least two or three quotes back from the whole lot. And we went to the same people as much as possible for both, but where we differed were windows, because uh, we had to kind of get specialist triple glazing. Was it Emily the same? Emily was the same. Emily was the same. I'm trying to think, I don't think, uh, I think windows was the main one, and obviously we had timber kit. Was it the same timber kit? It, yeah, it, it was yeah. the same timber kit, but it, just in terms of the skills as well, yeah. we because uh, during the build, we, we um, a lot of the staff went on the passivized tradesperson training course, mm -hmm. um, and and we took the 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 timber kit 
subcontractor with us as well, so, so they you know, uh, got skilled up with us as well. So um, I think that was our big sort of takeaway between the two is, is that um, learning curve between, between the two because although it was the same, pretty much the same build, but you know, just in terms of that enhanced air tightness detailing and the understanding around the foundation design and the insulation, there, you know, there was an enhancement there, which you know we were kind of learning as we were going along. So, um, yeah, I, I think um, that, that's our kind of biggest takeaway is that we, we need to obviously extend that down to the supply chain now and, and make them aware, just so they're not losing on the job. You know, they're they know that they're pricing in what what they're needing to do as well, um, and I think that's going to be the biggest biggest task moving forward. Yeah. So I'm going to bring the session to a close now. Thank you all for your questions. And uh, I'd like you to um, thank our speakers for such an interesting presentation. And have a good evening.